0: It is not the sauciest of subjects. But I'm gonna give it a try. By way of getting to it, I want to tell a little bit about more about me. Actually, you're gonna learn a lot more about me, but I have been a United Methodist pastor since 1979. And so I have preached and taught and traveled, and I have consecrated and I've cried. And I've, I've held hundreds of hands in the night. I have hired and fired, and I've facilitated and I've preached. But do I know discipleship? It turns out it's been a fairly consistent element in my life journey. And I'm going to guess it has been in yours as well. So discipleship, people, here we go. So, the journey into United Methodist discipleship started for me in Southern California. My high school boyfriend was besties with the local pastor's son. So, together we found ourselves in the choir and in the coffee house and in the conscientious objector efforts there. So, I sang in the choir and I made very earnest music in the coffee house. And I stuffed envelopes for the conscientious objector efforts. And somehow, back then, I seemed OK enough, uh, so they invited me to teach, substitute, uh, t- teach the children in substitute Sunday school. And of course, I loved it. So thanks for inviting me, I said. And then this journey uh, continued through community college in San Diego County. I went to Palomar College. Uh, It still sports a gigantic geodesic dome, and it was built, of course, by Henry Kaiser's company and designed by Buckminster Fuller. At the ripe age of 19, I lived in a single-wide mobile home inside an avocado grove. I worked as a ward clerk in an emergency room, and I served as youth minister at a very small church in Vista, California. We started the church's first youth choir there with no more than drums and voices and a teenage pianist. We ate grilled goat with our Kenyan college friends who celebrated their Independence Day. And we took a super long road trip to Grand Canyon and Zion and Bryce. We studied life and we lived it together together. And uh, we wove jute and cotton and bead and shell banners those years as our confirmation gifts to the church. I loved it. "Thanks for inviting me," I said. And then I went off to U.C. Santa Cruz, uh, where the campus ministry and the local church welcomed me, and they put me to work as a youth minister. And there I had a place to worship and to sing and to belong. And I loved it. And what I say, thanks for inviting me. And I'm very sure back then I did not know why or how any of this stuff was discipleship. The theology bug had not bit me yet, so I didn't know about discipleship formulas or stories. But I did have the feeling throughout these times that I was part of something larger than myself. So then I got another invitation, of course, for a seminar on hunger in the land of plenty at Merrill College. I took on the task of finding uh, free food or cheap food in Santa Cruz. I was not yet 21. I snuck into bars because I'd heard that happy hour served free food with a drink. I took three weeks uh, to dumpster dive in downtown. I learned how to use spreadsheets, a very good skill, so I could track all these food spots. And I met the fledgling founders of the Santa Cruz Food Co-op. I was thrilled at their level of, of communal work and striving. And again, I loved it, and thanks for inviting me, I said. So my call to ministry comes in there. It was solidified then. I got a bachelor's degree in psych and political science, But of course, if we're lucky enough to still have open minds and hearts and a healthy body through dorm living and all that, I I knew I wanted to explore life more deeply. And I was pretty sure this life stuff had to do with God and um, maybe church. So I thought if the United Methodist Church wanted me, I could maybe be a pastor My high school foray into the United Methodist world was pretty compelling. I liked the Vista United Methodist Church clergy guy pretty good. The campus minister at Santa Cruz was cool. The local church, not very. But they kept having me. So off I went to Pacific School of Religion and the Graduate Theological Union. And at seminary, I stumbled into many things. And one thing was called the Appalachia Service Project. I was hired to work on, uh, to organize work projects on a very poor Sioux Indian reservation. It was pre-wounded knee. It was before the 1976 uh, struggles and revolutions for indigenous people's self-determination. So youth groups would come uh, for a week, to live faithfully and experimentally together in service to building projects on the reservation. I saw my first leeches there. There are a lot of little lakes in North Dakota. I ate my first fry bread. I saw my first tornado funnel cloud. And I fell in love with beadwork and with buffaloes still in Divinity School. It goes on. I was elected uh, representative to the World Student Christian Federation. They had a quadrennial meeting in Colombo, Sri Lanka. It was so far from home. And I knew the world was so much bigger than me. And I, I really won't ever forget seeing the Southern Cross in those night skies down there. And I will never forget the smells. And really the surreal oceans and the sunrises, I was invited, and off I went. And of course, it finally dawned on me, as I traveled uh, up through India and uh, Europe and back to Berkeley, um, I thought, there, there's something to this discipleship thing, and I, I think it has to do with Invitation. So fast forward several years to a Bible study in a little local church where I was serving as pastor, and uh, most weeks we studied the Bible using the lectionary, so we got ready for the week following. But once a year, uh, we spent our time reading an entire gospel out loud from beginning to end in one sitting. And while I really liked the lectionary study, uh, I loved this whole gospel study. Marathon stuff. And as the very shortest gospel, Mark, who we read today, Mark was really the best one, because it was super readable, uh, it, it was brief, and it was fast-paced. Mark's gospel, as I encountered it back in those days, I felt it was urgent. And there's this writer named Ted Smith, he, he captures the urgency well. He says, Mark The Gospel of Mark begins like an alarm clock. It declares the time and it asks for a response. So, Mark's Gospel takes off without any of those beautiful infancy narratives no angels, no uh, no shepherds, um, no manger, and Mark sets the scene instead with these super compact accounts. Uh, It's sort of like mainstream news, I think. Like John the Baptist preaches, and Jesus gets baptized, and then he gets driven to the wilderness. So in contrast, Matthew, Matthew takes like 14 verses to get through that whole wilderness cycle of stories. Mark just does two. Very fast-clipped guy. So he refers to John the Baptist only so he can get to the main part of his story and what he's most interested in as a writer, and that was Jesus and his public ministry. So we, we read today, um, just a little bit, that's only halfway through chapter one, boom, Jesus is off and running. Invitation and urgency, there at the heart of it, in this book called The Message by Eugene Peterson, some of you know it, <clears throat> he starts the Gospel of Mark by saying, time's up. That's how he starts it. But it's not the kind of time that we keep track of on our smartphones or in our calendars or even in our journals. I don't think Mark is talking about days or or hours. I think that Mark is talking about another kind of time in which uh, a constellation of factors creates unusual significance. And so it's kind of like waiting for your birthday, maybe, or Christmas Day? It's kind of like waiting for a baby to be born, or, or even waiting in death. It's also the kind of time Mark talks about that possesses gravity. It's a time that I think reeks of portent and magic. It can also be a time out of time. So here's an example. The people of Israel have been, and maybe still are, waiting in this kind of time. Israel has believed that the heel of the oppressor could be lifted from their throats. So from Egypt to Assyria and from Babylon to Rome, and even in this present age, Israel trusts in God's promises, even though forces inside them and outside of them violate their vision of justice and peace. So the prophet spoke of this time. And the psalmists sing of this time. And Israel holds on to this time and honors this time. So much has been written and preached about the response of the disciples we read today. Those guys that dropped everything to follow Jesus. Why did they do that? How could they upend their lives so dramatically? And would that kind of timing really be a good thing for us? We're only human. So when we hear these stories, we can't help putting ourselves in that boat or on the seashore or casting our own nets. We it's pretty normal. We ask ourselves, well, could we measure up to the standard that those disciples had and could we drop everything? What did the disciples know? and when did they know it? Barbara Brown Taylor, a pretty smart woman, suggests that we're missing the point if we linger too long on such questions. Taylor says this is a story about God, not the disciples, not about our individual, or even our private responses. She says to focus on what the disciples gave up, and whether we could do the same is to put the accent on the wrong syllable. So what Barbara Brown Taylor calls this is a miracle story. She says this is a story about God's power to walk right up to a quartet of fishermen and work a miracle to create an opportunity where there was none before. She says this is about creating It's about inviting disciples where there were none before. So, this way of approaching Mark's gospel might make us a little uncomfortable. I mean, we usually focus on choice, on choices we make. We actually experience a relative amount of independence in our lives, and uh, we, we think pretty seriously about our ability to shape our lives. Many of us truly feel we can and should determine our own destinies. We should be responsible for God's sakes. We generally feel, generally, that we can do what needs to be done, and we can fix, and we can improve. It's it's kind of the American narrative. We can do it. But what we lose in this approach, I think it's just that full sense of the power of God. What we miss with that approach is we miss out on the mysterious. We miss out on the untamed. What we have a hard time noticing is God's power. God's power to recruit, to grab up people who make good choices. God's power to invite students and artists And wanderers and workers. God's power to sneak up on people who are thinking about retirement and invite them or smack them upside the head with a new plan. So, I've introduced my experience of invitation, and I've talked about Mark's gospel sense of urgency, and I've asked us to think about this Bible passage differently to move away from the often-preached focus on our individual response to the call. And I'm even sounding kind of Methodist today because founder John Wesley was all about God's power, God's grace. So let's see if I can uh, bring it all together, see if I can bring it on home. So what I think, I think discipleship is about church. I think it's about church. I think it's about the fact that church, despite its imperfections, despite its survival needs, church has been discipling, and for some time now. Church has been inviting. You guys are pretty invitational here yourselves. Church has been inviting babies, and grandmas, and youth, and Women and men and families, and church has been inviting the firm and the infirm. Church has been inviting strangers and people we know all too well. Despite we've always done it this way, despite our debts and our disagreements, church has been calling people into something bigger, and it's been doing it for a very long time. Church. Church in congregations, church as in movements, church as in missions, church as in institutions, church as in coffee houses, and church as in cathedrals. To the extent that church invites with some urgency, to the extent that church lets in God's power and God's grace, discipleship is what happens. It's about church. So the mystery of all this, to me, is that church has been chosen to make its own limited and fairly conditional love to be a gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. And to the extent we keep the gateway open, the invitations can be unlimited. So who among us here has been invited by church? Who has painted, who has cooked with church? Who has sung church? Who has suffered with church? Who's been educated by church? Who's been pissed off by church? Who's been propped up by church? Who has valued church? Who has questioned church? Who has left church? Who's come home to church? Who among us here has been invited to church? And who among us yearns still to be invited? So Kelly Love, she invited me to consider preaching on discipleship. I think it's about church. Church. I do not think it is about an esoteric formula, and it's not about us twisting ourselves into some gotta-get-it-or-got-to-do-it Christianity. I think it's about church. It's about us being willing to invite the best off, the worst off, the cool, and the cranky into a new way of being and not worry about the consequences. It's about the imperfect and impossibly grace-filled church. It's about inviting church, because who knows? We may bring out the best in somebody when we invite them. We may bring out the best in ourselves. So thanks for the invitation. Thanks for discipleship, church. Amen.